Hey folks, before we begin airing season two, I wanted to take a week to acknowledge the album that my band Grand Honey has put out recently. It's called Canopy, it was released on October 1st, and our good friend Ian Garland was kind enough to grace us with some interview questions so that we could have a rather in-depth conversation about what went into the making of the record as well as what we learned about ourselves as a band recording an album together during the pandemic. For those who have yet to listen to the album, you'll have a chance to hear some previews in the musical interludes of this episode. So, Season 2 of Black Market Therapy will officially start next week, and for now, here's a really fun interview that we did with Ian Garland about the making of our album, Canopy. Enjoy the show. To start things off, each of you three, I'd like to get your name, your role in the band, and your favorite record that's come out in the last five years. Ooh. Well, Matt and Jeremy, there's no way they're going to be able to pick a favorite. <laughs> I have a favorite. <laughs> oh, okay. Oh, wow. Okay. Oh, wow. Okay. All right. Yeah, my name is Jeremy. Uh, I'm the bass player, and my favorite album from the last five years is St. Cloud by Waxahachie. Matt, if you've decided yet, yeah, you can... <laughs> I haven't yet. Hold on. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'll go. I have like a. I'm gonna say my gut reaction, which changes every day, but whatever. Coming. So I'm. I'm Matt Emmer. I uh, write songs and sing and play guitar in Grand Honey, and the album that just like keeps on coming to mind whenever I think about this question right now is Rough and Rowdy Ways by Bob Dylan. Mm. I didn't even know Bob Dylan okay. still made music to this day. Oh, it's great. His best stuff mm. is like the last twenty years. Yeah. I'm going to go with my gut reaction. This probably isn't true in that it's another thing that changes from time to time. But I think an album that I go back to a lot is Michael Kiwanuka's Love and Hate. Ready? It's it's really the time, the, the limited time frame. It's like I haven't really gotten into that much new music. Oh, I'm Joel Mungin. I, I play guitar and, and sing uh, in Grand Honey. And um, I think my favorite album in the past five years, if only because of the limited window of time, uh, <laughs> is Michael Kiwanuka's Love and Hate. Oh, yeah. It's a great, great record. I'll have to check that out uh, once I get out of this. Um, I guess moving on to the next question, what makes a Grand Honey song? Mm. What makes what you guys individually write and bring together something that is definitively for grand honey, mm. whether it be song for the record song, you only play live, et cetera, et cetera. That's really interesting. I think that it's always like a tricky thing, especially when there are like multiple singers or creative voices in a band to like, try to figure out like what that we bring, make something uniquely grand honey or uniquely like any, you know, band. I think a big thing for us, I guess, like, we'll maybe, like, kind of bounce back and forth between us, but I think, like, connection to kind of a loosely defined heritage of, like, folk music with, like, a very Mm. broad sense of what that means and a very, like, intentionally open kind of filter for, for what it can become. But I think most of what we do has some roots to something a little older or a little bit 
just connected to something outside of ourselves, you know? Yeah, I would agree. I think that the ingredients tend to be some sort of at least a loose lineage to um, the folk music tradition, some sort of loose song structure that harkens back to folk song structure and uh, a malleability that allows the songs to progress into a jam or into an improvised section or into a there's so like part of what makes a grand honey song a grand honey song would be like the sporadic nature of where it can go i i yeah i think like flexibility and like that improvisational element is also like a really big part of like I can't really imagine us doing like a whole lot of songs that sound the same every time we play them, you know? I think a lot of that is the instrumentation. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Because we, we don't usually play with a drummer. And so the roles in the band are much more fluid at any given time, which means that at any moment, you know, I'm playing the drums, Matt's playing the drums, Joel's playing the drums, but no one actually has a drum kit. Uh-huh. And so everyone is circling... <laughs> circling around each other in a way that changes the sound for any given performance because one person fills in a different role in a different way. Yeah. Jeremy, you gave me a really good compliment once when you were, I think you were listening back to our recording that we did at Starlight and you told me that I'm a really good percussionist. You are. Despite that I was only playing on the guitar, but kind of like doing fills with strumming and that kind of thing, or like rhythmic finger picking in such a way that like it kind of mm-hmm. takes the place of the percussive or it fills the need of the percussive element. But I, it was not a compliment that I was like expecting or that I had been like seeking out with the way that I play. So I think that when you play without a percussionist, without a drummer, like that is a role that is naturally filled by the musicians. So I think there is this like dancing around each other's playing and when certain instrumentation is, I won't say lacking, but like is is absent, there's a way in which you kind of like have to take cues from each other to fill that sonic space the way that it would normally be filled by that instrumentation. And that taking cues from each other, like there's an attentiveness that on our best days <laughs> leads to some really good improvisation and and, and some good jams. Yeah. And that also like kind of the instrumentation and like the limitations and like fluidity of that, I think also like harkens back to that like other principle of like being rooted in some kind of folk tradition, because Mm -hmm. with our instrumentation, we can musically pretty much go anywhere improvisationally and still always have some kind of connection to tradition and folk and like that kind of thing because it is acoustic and because it is this like kind of small ensemble sound like it's always going to be tied to old time and folk music no matter where it goes 25 by 2020 20, 91 and 85 child of millennia satisfied to be alive we'll survive what will survive what will survive We'll survive. We'll survive. What would you say is the method of like fleshing out a song? Do you guys just come to each other with licks, uh, full blown uh, progressions, and then just kind of improv them out from there, or do you guys just like on the spot like 
and I hash something out and then at some point present lyrics? Um, that's a really good question. It can happen a few different ways. Most of the time, Joel or I will come to the group with a pretty finished song, especially like my songs are usually pretty thought through, like melodically and lyrically, uh, by the time I bring them to the rest of the folks. But yeah, I think arrangement-wise, I'll often have something in my head, but that can go out the window pretty easily. Um, Mm -hmm. Canopy, the like five of my songs that kind of like started the process of that record just because of like COVID and stuff, like were demoed pretty extensively, like with me playing bass and different guitar parts and all of that before we recorded. But at the same time, like, those arrangements, with some exception, aren't necessarily that similar to what ended up on the record. Mm. But most of the time, yeah, we're, we're trying to, I think, ideally, my ideal is always to, like, spontaneously find some kind of interesting, spontaneous-sounding arrangement. You know, that's always my ideal, and sometimes we get it, sometimes it takes a little bit more work to get it right, but I think that that's always kind of what we're working towards. Maybe mm-hmm. maybe Joel and Jeremy have different ideas than I do of what we're working toward, but that's okay. <laughs> when I think about how a Grand Honey song tends to be finished, meaning tends to be arranged, there's a, I wouldn't say that there's a formula, but there's like a playing of, of roles in any given song where like Matt and Jeremy synchronize into this jam band thing because they're both very much into the jam band stuff, um, much more so than I am. And I tend to try to make it like as Baroque folk as I can, like as like kind of like progressive folk finger style playing stuff, like as much as I can add into that without distracting from the song's vision that's kind of the texture that I try to apply. So if there is a formula, it's that. It's that like there's the jam band side of it, there's the structured song side of it, and then there's the kind of coloration side of it. And I think that all pretty naturally at this point comes together when we're trying to figure out an arrangement, when there's a new song to uh, to give our attention to. And a lot of the time, like we... like. It's rare for me to have heard a song before I play a song in the band. Yeah, I'm not good about about demoing most of the time. Me, hey, neither is Joel. Nope. So like, like we'll start playing, and it's like, okay, I do I know how many verses there are? No. Do I know if there's a bridge? No. Do I know when the chorus is going to come back around? No. And so it's just like we're playing with this like very bare bones to me like the harmony is is the thing that matters the most in the rhythm and like wherever that ends up going collectively as a band is where it ends up going and it, i don't think of that part as building but it's more of like a cohering that happens mm. at that point i mean i think that there's like the lack of demoing is born both out of like laziness Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but also (laughs) out of like i don't know if you don't if you don't know how the song goes you have to listen really hard and i think that like that's ultimately like what we're kind of dancing around here is that like a song comes together by us listening really closely to each other Mm -hmm. and like trying to like find what complements what the other person is doing and i would add to that um i heard dave grohl put this really nicely in an interview the other day like he was talking about not being able to read a chart, like he doesn't read music. 
I'm the same way. I don't read music. I So like looking at a piece of paper while I play along is a little bit too much for me in a, in a sensory way. So like yeah, same. it's easier for me to listen to what Matt is playing and watch his fingers. And the way that Dave Grohl put it was like when he hears music, he sees almost like Lego pieces coming going together. So he kind of hears the structural elements and visualizes that in a certain way. I'm not exactly the same, but it helps me to think of chords and think of melodies and think of changes in a song as different structural pieces that, that go together. So understanding how to visualize that by just watching somebody else and trying to play along with them at the same time demands your attention so much that you almost have to memorize it. So it is helpful to not demo. I don't recommend it, but in our specific case, it, I know Jeremy's probably the most frustrated with it. Yeah. I, I just, I just play differently, but it's, it's a stretch for me and, it, and it's, it's good to, it helps me learn. Yeah. I really love learning Joel's songs that way because like, harmonically like even like joel doesn't really pick predictable chords for his songs a lot of the time but like interesting at this point i'm like Mm -hmm. pretty i think i like we're pretty in tune of like i can usually tell what chord you're gonna play next even if it's not a regular one and for me it's like my brain just kind of fires off with like different kind of constellations of like notes and stuff trying to like coalesce usually on like with Joel's songs I try to find some kind of central musical like theme or riff to kind of anchor everything around and then mm-hmm. once I can lock in with that then it's like the doors are off and like we can go anywhere and Joel writes really great songs for like that kind of exploration so it's always a lot of fun to Ooh. try them out <laughs> I hadn't thought of my chord choices as being unpredictable it gives me something to think about <laughs> I, don't, I mean i don't know if i mean like specifically like weird chords but like you yeah. know you, you you know you don't write a bunch of like one four five like standard oh, that's true you know you, you yeah. pick interesting colorful chords that i love mm-hmm. to play around with you know as the seabirds wings up an Our doubts at the sides we fix As we walk in step with the waves that we resist So lie the stones in our path So hide the shores in the wind So one thing that's been kind of racking my brain uh, ever since I've listened to the album is the title track is an instrumental track. The <laughs> only instrumental track. It's mentioned briefly in So Lie the Stones, but otherwise the album's named after an instrumental track. Is there anything you wish to convey having made that choice? Matt? <laughs> <laughs> it's actually really cool because we all kind of have a hand in that decision and how that ended up so jeremy named the album canopy after we recorded basic tracks about a year ago i didn't uh, know that after (laughs) the line in so live stones the instrumental canopy had not at that point been written 
Joel, I think, gave me the assignment of like, there needs to be some kind of spacey instrumental intro to Soli the Stones. And it ended up feeling like its own thing and being kind of long enough to like seem like its own thing. And then like I was like, what do I call it? I guess canopy makes sense, you know? Like wow. it made sense with the sound, <laughs> it made sense with uh to name it after the album. So it's, you know, I think I think audiences and people in general have a hard time remembering the name of instrumental songs. So yeah. naming it after the album also had like a functional kind of thing, but That's a good strategy. Yeah. Yeah, it was interesting. I when I said that we need a spacey intro, I remember suggesting like why don't I make a drone track? Like, mm. why don't and we can layer things on top of that, maybe, or like have some kind of windy sounds going or something. But we kind of reached the conclusion that this should be a very analog album. This should be a very like, not that it was recorded analog, but meaning it should be a very acoustic album. It should be a very like to keep digital out of it as much as we can to keep like signal processing and stuff to a minimum. So I was suggesting that we should have like a drone track or something. Um I still think that a hurdy-gurdy, if we could have found a hurdy-gurdy, <laughs> totally, totally. would have, would have gone really cool. well on So Lie the Stones. Um, but yeah, when, so once we decided to keep everything acoustic, though, like Matt just kind of sent over this like gorgeous Nick Drake sounding song um, that was just all instrumental. And it, it just it reminded me of like a lot of my favorite instrumental moments in like the, you know, the late 60s, early 70s records that I love so much. One thing I'm curious about, because um, it's it's coming up a bunch, um, I want to preface this. Upon hearing Buffy St. Marie for the very first time, lose teas like in September, mm-hmm. I thought this would be a lot more 90s alt-influenced, and the record came out to be more of um, just like a, a general like folk record with a bunch of different like ways to produce folk. Um, yeah. But I guess my po- the point I'm trying to get at is like, what is like some of the biggest influences to you guys? Like if you had to name like three artists that influences like the band as a whole, mm. or like you each of you individually. The album that kind of comes to mind first, I think, and I actually, I don't know how familiar Jeremy or Joel are with this album, but David Crosby's If I Could Only Remember My Name. You knew you were going to say this. You knew, yeah. (laughs) I mean, I've I've loved this album for a really long time. I found it when I was like 11 years old at like a library fair and like have been (laughs) listening to it ever since. It's, you know, David Crosby in like 19... 70 or 71 being like very 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 depressed and heartbroken and Mm. playing like late night jams with neil young and jerry garcia and like a bunch of other people too and Joni mitchell and all of this stuff and it's just like the most gorgeous record (laughs) you know like one of like just like of any kind that like has ever been made probably I'll, i'll go out and say that definitively and not just in my opinion. But um, <laughs> yeah, I think a lot of that even like unconsciously seeped into it. It's just like, you know, that I think has always been like a big high watermark for me of like what collaborative 
kind of genreless but like rooted organic music can sound like i do think that the the three-way venn diagram of artists that the three of us listen to regularly has like nothing in the middle like there are very few artists that i think the three of us would say that we listen to like on a regular basis yeah that's kind of true which is interesting because like i think the kinds of music that we listen to are all overlapping and the qualities that we look for in music are overlapping but like the specific artists and albums i think are very different that's a good way to put it yeah uh to respond to the like 90s alt rock thing too um so matt minigel mixed three songs on this album he mixed um buffy saint marie overcast and junefly when i was kind of like giving him some direction for buffy saint marie i told him to feel free to make it very jangly and the example that I used was, um, what's that band? Not the Wallflowers, the other one, Gin Blossoms. I was like, like, oh. like, like 90s Gin Blossoms, heard. Jingle yeah. Jangle. You've never heard Gin You've Blossoms? You've never heard the Gin Blossoms? <laughs> I don't think I have. I mean, like, maybe, like, passively, but I've never, like, put on a Gin Blossom song. I couldn't, I couldn't you've, name one for you. Yeah. You've heard Hey Jealousy. I know you've heard it. It's, <laughs> I'm like, sure I have. It's out there on the radio. Yeah. Hey Jealousy, Until I Hear It From You. Like, all the best 90s pop songs. Uh, (laughs) I love it. The thing is, though, that was very quickly translated into Matt Minigel saying, I don't want to head, like, too far into the bird's direction and then have to walk back from there. And then I was like, oh, yeah, the birds would be actually a a much better example of of what we're going for here than the gin blossoms. But... (laughs) Um, but at the time and like when I was sort of, so to give some background, like I said, we recorded this whole album in a, in a, not the whole album, but we recorded all the foundational tracks in a theater together, um, which before vaccines and everything, we, it allowed us to socially distance, um, while recording, but also be in a, in a room together and get some great acoustic sound out of it. But the next task was to record all of the overdubs from home. So when I was looking into how I wanted to arrange certain songs and what I wanted my contribution to certain songs to be, in recording some of those parts, I very quickly realized that a lot of how I would arrange songs for something like this, like a lot of how I would approach folk rock songs, is actually not stemming from my influences from the 60s and 70s and stuff. It's stemming from my like 90s alt rock influences. Um, on what will survive especially i did a lot of vocal work on that and i was really emulating a lot of the like vocal harmonies that i would hear in like a late 90s alt rock song you know so i kind of like took a moment to examine really what my influences are when it came to folk rock and sometimes they're not even folk rock influences i mean one of my like favorite bands of all time is like yola tango and i think they do such a great job of each of their albums feels totally focused and cohesive, yet they cover such like a broad range of styles and sounds. And so I think I was intrigued at the idea of approaching something like that with like the kind of limited instrumentation that we use, mm. you know, approaching that kind of breath. Also, like I was talking with Jeremy about this a few months ago, but like, I think a weirdly big melodic influence on like my writing and also on like my sense of arrangement is uh, Fountains of Wayne. 
Ooh, and that wow. album, uh, Welcome Interstate Managers, that, like, Stacy's mom is on. <laughs> yeah. Which I think that, like, everybody of our generation, like, listened to at some point. But, like, that album is incredible. And it's, like, so long with, like, so many different types of things that are all nailed perfectly. And yet, like, there's this cohesiveness in the writing that just, like, kind of brings it all together. You know? It's... Interesting learning how much 90s alt rock has actually influenced you guys' writing. <laughs> I guess without, so. like, And there's even more that like we're not touching on. Like Jeremy and I both have seen the band like Guster like multiple times. Sure. <laughs> and uh the Jayhawks are also very near and dear to our heart. There's a lot of yeah. 90s alt rock stuff <laughs> going on under the surface. So one thing that I've uh, I was thinking about it's been mentioned a handful of times on the record, but how much does religious faith play into the writing that specifically goes into Grand Honey? Mm. I, I have a pretty like fraught and deep relationship with like religion and Judaism, especially. I was like raised with like Judaism being like a big kind of part of like my life and my family's life, but like a very liberal but like you know white early 2000s late 90s liberal you know like which was in some ways really great and in some ways like pretty problematic and like weird um and so it just like it's a really fertile area for writing the way that i think anything kind of weird and prevalent in somebody's growing up would be um i grew up at like jewish summer camp over the summer when i was like a kid and then worked there as like an adult and probably too long as an adult and again like it's just like it's a weird place that like sits very heavily in my imagination and so like it comes up a lot and i still like work in the jewish world but like it's not you know religion and like faith isn't so much a big part of it as much as like it's a very rich and deep set of images and themes and metaphors that like i spend a lot of time with like at one point in my life i thought i was going to be a rabbi so like I kind of thought deeply about this stuff, but yeah, like thinking about it and like kind of using it recklessly artistically is kind of its service to me at this point, you know? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. My journey with, with Christianity has been like similar to Matt's in that there's been a lot of ambivalence and a lot of like healthy things to take with me, but maybe some unhealthy things that I need to shed over time. And like, about a year ago, I was kind of thinking about like, well, what of Christianity have I taken with me that is valuable to me now? And what do I need to leave behind? And I found myself being resentful of the fact that like I was ex being expected to either have an, an allegiance to Christianity or to completely disavow it. Like it seems to be a very binary way of engaging with it at all. You know, either you, you're religious or you're an atheist. And I felt very burdened by this, like, this choice that I felt I had to make. And can I be allowed to have, like, my individual practices and beliefs within a system of tradition, but maybe not necessarily within a religion? 
And Jeremy told me about this principle in Judaism that I cannot remember, but it was two words that sounded kind of similar. And if I try to say them now, I'm going to end up saying the names of Middle Eastern foods. <laughs> but do you remember what I'm what I'm getting at? Yeah, it's it's um it's keva and kavana. So keva is structure. Yes. Um, the things that you know pre-exist, so songs and services and blessings and things like that. And kavana is the intention that you bring to that thing on any given day. And so for me, it's a way of thinking about religion as a thing that is both stable, but also that changes as I bring things new to new things to it. Yeah, that conversation that we had like really helped me contextualize like what my role could potentially be in a Christian world or in, in a world where I want to like hold with me the things that I enjoy about Christianity, the things that like, without being a religious person, is there individual intentionality that I can bring to the cultural conversation around Christianity? And that's been on and off important to me in different ways and to different degrees. Wow. I'm still kind of figuring it out, but that was a really helpful conversation to have. I'm, I'm glad. And especially when talking about like writing in biblical metaphor and like, mm -hmm. you know, feeling like allowed to engage in that without being a Christian and without being a practicing religious person at all, which I don't necessarily want to be. But I think that there is like a lot of literary good that can come from mm -hmm. engaging in those metaphors, even though they're, even if they're religious metaphors and you don't mean to use them in a religious context. Trying to avoid a religious metaphor uh, in a fear of like having your music viewed in a religious context may seem like it's um, a gun you're loading yourself, aimed at yourself. Sometimes embracing it and like, you know, oh, adding further context and other music. I know there are several musicians who are ex-Christians. They don't want to identify with the Catholic Church anymore or a Christian mm -hmm. Church, whichever. But they still use the imagery in their songs to kind of develop the world around them and give them give the people that are listening a broader understanding of who they are as a person having had that religious trauma or falling out with the church and i guess always expecting like people for to be interpreting your music in a positive uh religious way is kind of just expecting one mindset out of everybody all the time whereas you know everyone's gone through various things you're questioning of faith and how that is interpreted in music may be a more helpful to people than you realize like there may be a lot of people who are in your space right now that are just waiting for someone to contextualize what they've been thinking for mm -hmm. a long time and that's how i approach a lot of the songwriting that i that i do um or at least i try to like when i'm really being con contemplative about it my understanding of the content that i'm creating has to be rooted in a sense that someone else is going to need to hear it. There's mm. sort of like the, the individualistic aspect of how I'm going to phrase something of how uh, the poetic way that I approach a song um, is going to be pretty specific to me. But when I'm using metaphors, when, like when I'm using metaphors, it's the poetry that matters. But when I'm deciding on the content, it's the empathy that matters. Mm. And it's like kind of the sense that, Someone else must have felt this at some point. Someone else must be thinking about this in, in some other way. Maybe I can put it in a way that is, I don't want to say more palatable, but more universal, more 
understandable, more uh, accessible. So I think like poetic and accessible goes into that for me, where if I'm going to, especially if I'm engaging in religious metaphor, you have to be real careful. Like, are you are you being preachy by using that metaphor or coming across as proselytizing or anything like that? Um, or is that going to be how it sounds at all? I think it's, it's so interesting that like you say that, because I think that like that might be the reason why like there are so many like Jewish songwriters, like in like the Pantheon or like the canon of like english language songwriters because Mm -hmm. like we don't have to be careful like we're you know it's not going to (laughs) come across as preachy like we're not part of any kind of like christian hegemony so like right you know like if you think of like leonard cohen or someone like that like or like bob dylan even who like plays with that a lot and like even like historically like had like the whole you know like christian period that like you can kind of argue or parse like how sincere different parts of it were but like we can play around with all of it. We can kind of frolic in it and like take what we want and like leave the rest because like we're not part of that Christian power structure. Like the eyes and ears of like Christian music and all of that are never going to like mistake it for anything of their own, you know? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Just like an interesting thing I hadn't really thought about. There's this song that I, I don't even want to say the line now, but there's this new song that I played with Matt a few weeks ago. And he said that one of the lines made it sound like it was about abortion. And it was not at all. It was supposed to be like a very specific, like contextually specific to a Buddhist concept. And I guess I failed because it made Matt think of abortion. And I was like, well, now that's all I can hear. So I have to change the line, (laughs) you know? (laughs) So (laughs) there are these moments when like your intention gets lost in the poetry and then it can be interpreted in the way that you did not mean to interpret it. And so I think that's one of the biggest challenge of metaphor and especially a religious metaphor or spiritual metaphor is that you, you never know how someone's going to interpret it and you want to go for the most universal interpretation possible. That's at least my one of, one of my main goals at all times. That's a really neat, deep dive that I didn't think I'd actually get out of here. <laughs> In the future works of Grand Honey, do you think you guys are going to step away from exclusively acoustic music and that you'll implement more electronics noises, whether it be synths, amplified guitars, I don't know, drones, as, <laughs> as Drobel was mentioning. I'm, I will always favor the drone. Um. <laughs> I mean, yeah, who, who, the answer is like really just like, who knows, you know, like, yeah. I think that we're all excited about kind of following this where it leads and like kind of letting the music speak for like what it needs to best support it. I, on the one hand, like am very excited and like love playing electric music, even if it has like in the past at least felt more kind of extracurricular than like a big part of like what I do in the sound I make. And so I, I do have, like, kind of on the one hand, like, all like never want to shut out the possibility of, like, quote-unquote going electric or incorporating those kinds of sounds. But at the same time, like, I'm really, at least right now, still very interested in 
the breadth of what we can accomplish acoustically. Yeah. Mm. It, we we actually kind of like just came from the electric uh, way of doing things where like we kind of started as an acoustic duo, Matt and I, and after Jeremy joined, it was kind of always our plan to find a percussionist. And uh, we had, we had Mitch playing with us for a little bit while we were in an electric band or, or an electric leaning band, I guess. Uh, yeah. There was a time when I was the only acoustic player. <laughs> and, That's uh, true. Yeah. I'll, but we never, we've never played a full show like that. Like, I think like even when I was playing electric guitar, at least a few songs I was playing acoustic on. Yeah. Well, we did one Will and Mills show where we did an ele- electric set and an acoustic set. Yeah. That was fun. And that was really cool. Like that in my, in like the back of my mind, since I was like a very little kid, I think was always like kind of the ultimate like way of presenting music yeah it's like that a was du- like my first show like yeah it's kind of like a you live like double 2007 album. Seeing you, you know, yeah <laughs> yeah but yeah like yeah my like very formative first like live music experience was like as a 13 year old seeing neil young play uh an acoustic set and then like a full-on electric set oh, and that was just like okay like yeah like this is what it's all about you know yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, for me, it's that once you open that box, I don't want to invoke like a slippery slope argument, but it is a slippery slope in a certain way. And there are so many options available to you. And I think that part of what makes our band fun is the way that we, I don't want to say mastered, but have learned to play with the limitations that we have. Mm-hmm. And so if we're used to these limitations, if you then open the box into more infinite possibilities, we lose a little bit of the interplay that has made our band special. So yeah. I, so even though like I don't really listen to folk music <laughs> um, <laughs> like at all, um, for this band, I like that sound because it's the thing that we do. Mm-hmm. Which is not to say that I don't want us ever to go in that direction, but I think that we should work with the momentum that we have with the thing that we know how to do before we mm-hmm. totally just change course and throw that all away. Yeah. I, I think that like it's important to say that like I think a big part of like what we want to do and why we're in this, like we don't want to do the same thing over and over again. We want to always be challenging ourselves and always be like changing and like trying different things. I think a lot of bands especially bands that like maybe start out in this kind of vein make the mistake i think of like either thinking that like changing means that you have to change instruments and like incorporate those kinds of sounds or means that like you have to commit exactly to what you're doing and to the formula that you like you've already established look at mumford and sons well yeah look i think that like that's kind of like the danger of like not that like i was ever really a fan of their music but like they kind of it seems like they gave up what made them even just like unique too early you know like and they just became i mean i think like the music was kind of all always fairly generic and then like they kind of lost you know the thing that made their sound to like most people not feel generic and like i not that i think our music sounds generic like on its at its core but like you know i'm i'm not eager to like give up the parameters that i think maybe make this a little special you know Mm.
I wonder if we can revisit a question, actually. Um, I can't remember exactly how Ian had phrased it earlier, but when Jeremy was saying that, like, the Venn diagram of our musical tastes has no center, <laughs> um, which I think could be close to true. But I'm wondering what non-folk influences we have that lend themselves to the particular brand of folk or folk rock that we play. That's a really interesting question. It's funny, when you say there's no center to our musical event diagram, I think there's literally one band. What's the band? Milk and Kids. Oh, yeah. It's like non-interesting answer, yeah. like especially for our band, it's like maybe the least interesting answer, but like <laughs> it's the one band I've seen live with both of you. Right. That's <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> true. But back to the, the interesting question um, about non-folk influences. I want to say something cool like Sun Ra or like <laughs> anything like that. But like if I'm being like totally honest, it's probably fish. Like it's probably like the kind of sense of like melodic bounce and flexibility that I've gotten from just like listening to a lot of Trey Anastasio's guitar playing. Like there's very, very, very few fish songs that like I've learned mm -hmm. or like moments that like I study as a guitar player like it's just like not my idiom but like I love listening to it I, I, I fish to me almost isn't like music I feel like I almost like process it like people process sports sometimes of like it's both a musical thing and like almost like a numerical community thing of like measurement and all of that but um I, I just like I can't help but be influenced by that kind of sense of play mm. that i think they always bring to things yeah mm. jeremy what would you say i kind of agree with the fish part maybe a little, a little bit less for me but i too have like i've i can play like one fish bass line the ones that are like two <laughs> notes and like uh -huh. <laughs> you know you move on um for me it's probably jazz um i played a lot of jazz in school i listened to a lot of it i'm not like I'm, I've never been one of those people who's like, oh, did you know that, you know, so-and-so played on this session at this tape, but actually the better take is the late night session played with this saxophone player who was outside <laughs> on the street and needed a job. Like, like, like that I've never been able to do, yeah. but the, the, the sense of movement that I, that I hear a lot in jazz is something that I think about a lot playing the bass. Um, I also, I mean, my, like maybe biggest musical influence will always be John Entwistle from The Who. Um, okay. Because, I mean, I was like a little kid playing the bass in the orchestra, and, you know, we always played two notes, and it was just back and forth, like the one and the five, and that was all that we did. Mm. And then I saw a video of John Entwistle playing My Generation, and I could not believe you could do that on a bass. And the idea of, like, bass melody is, like, his playing is what I always come back to. And Joel? I've been trying to think of a guitar influence. Vocally, I'm kind of always going back to Daniel Johns from Silverchair. They're remembered for being this very cliche, like post-grunge Nirvana ripoff band, but their third and fourth albums are like very orchestral and there's a lot of cool vocal arrangement stuff on them. So that would be vocally, maybe not really guitar-wise though. And I'm trying to think of a guitarist or a band that has had a big influence on my playing style that is not I mean aside from like aside from like when I used to be kind of more into metal so maybe the Grand Honey goes metal <laughs> let's do it 
I mean, that might honestly be the best non-folk answer, because as far as my, like, acoustic playing style, it's all Ani DeFranco, Burt Janch, John Martin, um, Ben Howard, all these people that, that play the acoustic guitar in a rhythmically interesting way, um, informed a lot of how I play now. But I think as far as, like, voicings and, like, harmonically, that comes a lot from like listening to metalcore in the mid 2000s. <laughs> <laughs> so, Joel, you're That's the awesome. only person that mentioning influences outside of folk uh, has not named the bands that influenced them. So, I'm well, embarrassed I'm, I'm, too. Uh, no, I, <laughs> you, you can't be embarrassed. You gotta like own. No embarrassment. There's no embarrassment. Honestly, I talked no, about I... Fountains of Wayne, Joel. Get out there. <laughs> Hey, that's a good album. That's like a well-respected oh, album. Oh, it's a great album. <laughs> yeah. I will stand by it, but like it's never going to be a cool thing to bring <laughs> yeah, up. That's true. Right? I think I'm actually, I, I don't know. I might be the only person that hasn't heard that album here. Oh, you got to listen that's to right. it. Yeah. Well, I need to water a plant. I'll be back in one mm-hmm. second. Okay. I'll wait to name the band before you <laughs> Is it Judas Priest? You can tell us if it's Judas Priest. No, that's way before the mid two thousands. Oh, I, I'm sorry, my metal timeline is not something that <laughs> <laughs> I'm really. Kept They're like up to the, date. like them and Iron Maiden are like the quintessential eighties band, eighties metal. They're bands. that old, you know? Yeah. Oh, I had no idea. Yeah. I think so. I'm sorry. I think I'm a go rude. back to like mid eighties. Yeah, you just need to learn. Like you need to go and pick up your uh, I don't know a book about metal and start learning the history. Otherwise, you're not going to make it yeah. in middle school. <laughs> you're right. And that's my big fear is not making it in middle school. <laughs> I wake up in the middle of the night and I'm like, oh, what if I don't make it? You will never get into metal fab. You will never be a welder. You hear me? You have nothing. I'm talented. <laughs> Sorry about that. That's I'm being mocked is what's happening. That's what you missed. What? I'm being mocked for um, inferior metal knowledge, both apparently of the the genre, but also the material. Yeah. Um. Okay. No. Like I. So honestly, and this is going to sound like a ridiculous statement. Avenged Sevenfold made me a better guitarist. That's not ridiculous in the slightest. I mean, it makes sense because they have one of the best guitarists in, on the planet playing for them. Mm. Um, I will still defend their self-titled album with mm-hmm. honor which is the <laughs> white album or the black album that would be the white one i believe mm-hmm. i think the black one is waking the fallen yeah um learning how to play their dual lead guitar parts taught me a lot about harmony but i'd say like the biggest influence was probably kill switch engages as daylight dies which was like a super heavy and very melodic and i need melody and i think that that's like what that era of metalcore was doing really well was they were conveying heaviness and melody and just a nice clean and compressed sound like in a way that had not been done before really so i got a lot of appreciation for heaviness out of that Mm -hmm. and a lot of appreciation for like again how to voice certain chords in like an ugly but beautiful way (laughs) joel i think it's really funny that you have a history in metal because for a while it seemed like you just picked up a lot from Elliot Smith in terms of making melody. And but now now that you've mentioned like 2000s metalcore and the melodicness of it, it makes more sense to me now hearing your music 
because I have a background in metal as well. I throughout high school I was very into melodic the melodic death variant of things, mm-hmm. and I I completely understand where you are coming from in terms of like taking these like pretty but ugly by texture sounding songs yeah. and like making them like marketable. It makes a lot of sense too, because like I feel like when we were growing up, you know, obviously like at slightly different times, but mid two thousands was when like Guitar Hero was huge, and like yeah. around the third iteration of Guitar Hero, there was this insane metal revival that I enjoyed the hell out of, honestly. You know, like people were just getting like <laughs> the Dragon Force era of music, <laughs> was... the Fire and Flames, <laughs> yeah. hell yeah. yeah. <laughs> Herman Lee. Yeah, but there was this revival of like shredding, and I never really got so much into shredding. Um, I don't know that I have the dexterity for it, but like certainly I, it helped me learn harmonies. It helped me learn chord voicings. It helped me learn, you know, certain harmonic techniques. And uh, yeah, I'm grateful for it. I still go back to some of that stuff today. Now we do the slowest, saddest dual guitar shredding of all time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> What is the most important thing you'd want listeners to take away from this record? Is there anything spiritually, lyrically, melodically, or just something overall in the package that you'd want people to take away with at the end of the day? It's a good question. Um, <laughs> I mean, I don't know. On on some level, like, whatever you take away from it is fine. You know, like, whatever it, it brings to you is, like, good and valid as long as it's not, like destructive but I, I hope that somebody's able to gain a sense of like perspective I, I guess from it of just like a kind of openness to listen closely not just to like the album but to like what's around you and like be attuned to what you can find you know like I said um, I didn't mix every song I mixed half of them, and then I mastered all of them. So I think my biggest focus on this album was the soundscape. Mm -hmm. And that's not super important to every listener, but it's important to me. And it's what I put a lot of effort into. And it's, it's important to me as a listener that the music is textural in a certain way and scenic in a certain way and thematic in a certain way and... I want every song to be a place that somebody can like really inhabit and dwell in as, as they're listening. Mm-hmm. So as the person who kind of worked hardest on the soundscape of the record, like that would be my hope that it's an, it's a nice place to dwell. Hmm. Mm. Respect that. Jeremy, you got anything? Yeah. Um, I think the context of the record is very important in the sense of, for me, this band is all about the interplay between us and how we fit together and our different parts and all of that. And we had not played together for nine months until we sat down and we banged these tracks out in like five hours. Mm-hmm. And it was a very strange feeling. It was also the day the election was called. So it was like a very odd vibe, oh, like the entire yeah. that whole thing. Um, and like we started like the moment it was called. Yeah. <laughs> like the yeah. lecture was called, we all sat down, we played speak if you have understanding, and that's the first thing you hear on the record. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. 
And so, like, I don't really know what to make of that. But <laughs> to me, that that feeling of, like, I have not seen these people who I've been playing music with for so long, in so long. And then we just, like, sat down and we, you know, we laid it down. We did not say, like, you know, what part have you been working on on this song? You know, since we actually did send demos around, like, like there, that conversation wasn't there. Like, I had written a bass part, like, no one heard. I was like, I'm just going to play this part. And... It was like we were right back there. Mm-hmm. It was like we didn't miss a step, and that made it really special for me. That was not without its challenges, though. Obviously, yeah. I mean, well, yeah, but I remember very clearly, like I was, I was probably good on most of the songs, but it had been so, like you said, nine months since we had played together. Yeah. So much of our playing together is chemistry, and when you're not accustomed to someone's like musical presence around you while you're playing. And I said earlier, I never played to a chart, but I actually did like write out everything on paper so that I could have something to look at because I felt like having that sensory stimulation in front of me was going to help me focus better. And especially during a recording session, like I wanted to make sure that I could just nail all the parts and not be searching my memory for what's coming next. But I, I treated myself like more like a session player rather than like a jam band player specifically because I was unsure of what it would feel like to play with people after nine months of not seeing anybody. So, you know, Jeremy's right that like there's the context of that is we managed to kind of pull it together and experience that, that unity again. And it's interesting timing because Matt and I started playing together right at the end of Obama's presidency. I think Trump got elected on Matt's birthday. (laughs) Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that was not a fun birthday. So this was a full circle moment politically for us. (laughs) Totally. (laughs) And it's worth noting that like the lead up to to recording this album was really difficult. Um, Mm -hmm. There were a lot, a lot, a lot of like false starts and like times when Mm -hmm. we thought that we could get together, but um, either like the building fell through or there was one time where I had like a workplace exposure to COVID, which like thankfully didn't turn in and turn into anything but like that fall like i had to quarantine for two weeks and wasn't allowed to see anyone and that like you know bumped a recording date and so the combination of all of that had just like a lot of just kind of unspoken and spoken tension built up mm-hmm. that that moment of like getting together sitting down and like the fact that that first take of speak if you have understanding including the vocal that we used just like immediately i was like that's going on the album that's track one that's like the take we're using but i i I tend and joel and jeremy i'm sure will not in agreement but like i tend to like go overboard with like an artistic idea and like throw something out there and be like we're gonna do this and then it takes like joel and jeremy to like kind of pull me back to reality and so like that was one of those times where I ended up working out of being like, we're going to use this f- first take. Like, we got to use it. Like, that has to be, like, on there. And uh, luckily it did. <laughs> yeah. But I think you can hear it, you know? Completely unnecessary question, but I want to ask this. Jeremy, 
Are you ever going to commit to getting an upright bass and making this band fully acoustic? Yeah, thank you for asking that, Ian. <laughs> I have such a small apartment. You there can live in the bass. There is literally not... <laughs> like the old lady who lived in the shoe? Yeah. You could have a um, bass band. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I, I, I would like that um, when logistically it is more feasible. I mean, I, I see if you clear those sh- shelves like right behind <laughs> you, you could probably have a nice spot to set up your base Maybe. and probably let it show. Jeremy, if you if you just forego all your books and records, you'll be fine. <laughs> yeah, it's true. Or build shelving into the base. I keep on saying, like, use it architecturally. <laughs> that would be great for the sound. <laughs> With the stuff rattling around on it. Yeah, that'll be great. If you didn't own so many books, you hoarder. <laughs> That's also where I keep my beans. I have these, these Tupperware containers of beans. I couldn't give those up. I also like that both Jeremy and I have keyboards next to us. No keyboards on the record. Zero. <laughs> Oh, yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, we never went into whether we would use synths eventually. Yeah. yeah. I don't know. Again, we'll see not, what happens. But Not anti-synth, but I don't know how it fits in, but maybe one day. Yeah. What yeah. about, like, grand pianos? Would you ever use one of those? Oh, sure. Yeah, definitely. Or, like, there are some of our songs that, like, could totally benefit from a Hammond or something. Yeah. You know? Mm. And I love that sound. I love keyboard sounds. I love the sound of like a Wurlitzer or like a Rhodes mm-hmm. also. Like, oh, yeah. I, I really love the sound of a Wurlitzer with acoustic instruments. I think that that's a really cool like combination that I'd love to explore mm. at some point. I'm not good enough at any keyboard instrument to like do it myself, but um, I love playing around with it. I love writing on keyboards yeah. and stuff. Really? I think that's just about every question I have for you guys. So. Um, I don't know if you yeah. guys. Oh, sorry, Joel. Oh, I was just gonna say thank you so much for doing this. Yeah, thank yeah, you. Man. Thank you so much. It was a great. pleasure. Like you guys have made one of the coolest sounding folk records I've heard all year, and it's just awesome to talk to you guys and like kind of pick your brains a little bit on all the influences because this is a very unique product that I can't wait to see more out of. I hope okay. everybody goes and listens to Dragon Force now. <laughs> <laughs> no, they're going to be listening to early events sevenfold now. Oh, maybe. The album yeah. is uh, Inhuman Rampage, uh, Dragon Force. Thank huh? you for allowing us to come on to your <laughs> podcast to promote it, Ian. Um, available on streaming services everywhere. <laughs> is that the name of the Dragon Force album that yes, the Fire Flames is on? <laughs> wow. Is that from memory? Don't know how I can. No, that was from memory. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. There's a path above.